at the time of the exile of the Jews from the land of Israel, the people are, are being cast out of the land. And of course, that land was a key part of God's promise to them. God promised to give them that plot of land. So when they're being cast out, that's a blow to the covenant. Of course, also at this time, their temple was destroyed. That was a key part. That was a key uh, distinctive of them as a nation that was severely broken. And God spoke in very strong terms at this time through the prophets that their status as a people was in question. God was rejecting them. He uses strong words like even divorce. So the question is, would God keep his promises to them? You see, as the people come back into the land, how much faith it would take to look back at the scriptures before they were exiled and say, okay, is God really going to do all this? They needed a lot of hope. The prophet Haggai lived among the community of the Jews at this time who had returned to Jerusalem from captivity. And he was one of the messengers of God, along with the prophet Zechariah at this time, to tell the people to rebuild the temple. God intended to do this. This was part of his program for them returning. He promised it would happen. He told them to, but they had become distracted, as you may remember, building their own houses kind of holding their finger to the winds of political change, seeing when the time would be right for them to finally do something that was very politically unpopular and dangerous. So God comes to Haggai and speaks through him to the people and says, start working. Do uh, work on my house. There's been a lot of consequences that have come as you've waited. But you realize that as you, as you keep ignoring my house, you're headed to the exact same spot that you've just come from for you didn't really value my presence among you. God wants the people to value his presence with them. Of course, God doesn't need a house. No house can contain him. This house wasn't as glorious as the last one, but of course, even Solomon's glorious temple wasn't big enough. Solomon says this, no house made by human hands can contain God. But it is the sign of God's presence with them. And while they leave it in shambles, of course, there's no way to have formal worship at the temple, but it's just a sign that they don't care enough that God is really with them, but he is the prize of the people of Israel, and God wants them to put out the effort to demonstrate it. But then they do. They respond to, prof to Haggai's first prophecy, and they, they get to work, and they obey, and God commends them for this. But soon they need encouragement, because it's no more popular than it was. It's no less dangerous than it was. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah as they're building the walls of Jerusalem at another time, you get a sense of the, the kind of pressure that was coming against them and the kind of needs that they have, political pressure, financial needs, resources, things like that. They needed encouragement. So God reiterated his promise to them. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you obey, I will bless you. You can't continue in sin and expect God to continue to bless. But if you value God's presence and you prioritize his will, you can expect to see his favor in your life. This is the kinds of message messages that God is delivering through the prophets to the exiles who are back in Jerusalem. So God has just said to the people, uh, if you were with us last time, we considered the previous prophecy that came... Uh, on the last day, I'm trying to find my place here. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, and God is teaching them a lesson. All the people, you have to obey to have God's blessing. But on the same day, 
that God uttered that promised reward for obedience, he comes again to the leader of the, the small group. And this leader is Zerubbabel. He's the governor of Judah. He's, notice, governor who has been appointed by Persia. They're kind of a, a vassal kingdom now under Persia. Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiachin, or you might come across the name Jeconiah in the Bible, who was one of the final kings of Judah before the exile. He became king, I believe, in 598, 597, something like that. Jehoiachin was the king who was taken into exile into Babylon for over 30 years. There's a point in the prophet Jeremiah when there's a reference to the 37th year of uh, the exile of Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. So Zerubbabel, what does this mean for him? He's the grandson of that king. He is the rightful heir of the throne of David. He's a great, 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 however many grandson of King David. But he's just a governor. And remember that to David, that great king of Israel, God had specifically promised a son on the throne forever. And so, of course, as he's uh, in this line of David, you'll see his name in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. He's in the line of Christ. He's a son of David. He's a father of the Messiah. And in this final prophecy here of Haggai, God reaffirms the Davidic covenant to another of David's sons. God often repeats covenants. He did this many times to Abraham. God is repeating the promise to David, to one of David's sons, one of his great, great, many great grandsons. And you could see why this would be important, because this promise appears to have been delayed. You could even say suspended, because is there a king in Israel at this time? There is not. There's not a king over Judah. Has God's promise even been canceled, as we'll see as we have good time? And why did this happen? Well, by the sin of the Jews. Could their sin really overturn God's promise? Can it really delay it? Can it nullify it? Can it cancel it? And we, under we certainly understand how they may have felt about this, because we know what it feels like when it seems that God's promises towards us are canceled because of our sin. Have you ever felt that way? God can't keep his promise to me. I've sinned too much. I see how long it's taken for him to fulfill this. Maybe I broke it. We feel that our sin nullifies God's promises. And sometimes it does look that way. It certainly looked that way to Zerubbabel. But I want you to see from this passage that when you feel that your sin has canceled God's promise, there's hope. And the hope is in, in Christ. Hope in Christ who fulfills all God's words. God keeps every promise he makes, even those that seem delayed by sin. There's no sin that can cancel God's promise because Christ deals with sin. All God's promises, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, are in him, yes and amen. So, of course, the name Jesus doesn't occur here. So why do I say hope in Christ? Why can I say that from this passage that Christ provides hope to those who feel they've ruined God's promises? Well, I believe this truth, I believe this prophecy is a reference to the Messiah. I believe Zerubbabel is, is kind of anticipating the, the, the Messiah. 
I believe this truth here to hope in Christ arises from two, you could say, realities that God intends to accomplish through the Messiah. What are these? How do they give us hope? Well, God communicates through this prophecy first that God wants you to know that he will remove everything opposed to him. And then second, that he will fulfill every promise he makes. Let's read the text this evening. See what the Lord has for us. Haggai 2, starting in verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God is saying, first of all, Zerubbabel, I want you to know something. I will remove everything that is opposed to me and seems to be a hindrance to my promise. God first, I think, is addressing what appear to be hindrances to his promise. In verses 20 and 21, he comes to Zerubbabel. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. You see here that he's referred to as the governor. This word is actually different than the word that's the word king. It's a different Hebrew word that's used of Darius, who's the king of Persia. There's a definite difference between the king of the empire and the governor that that king appoints. So Zerubbabel is not a king of Israel. And what is God saying? I'm going to shake the earth. I'm going to turn upside down the whole world order. So right now there's a very definite pecking order and Darius is at the top. You're kind of in the middle maybe towards the bottom, but I'm going to shake the earth. Everything's going to be different. This situation is contrary. What I'm trying to point out is the, the existence right now in uh, Jerusalem is contrary to God's promise to David. There's not a king on the throne of David. He's just a governor. But God's going to turn it upside down. He says, I'm going to overthrow these are very graphic words. I'm going to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. This word overthrow is demolish. He's going to go after the seat of power in all of these kingdoms. He's going to destroy the power of the kingdoms. The word uh, destroy is exterminate. And the power of the kingdoms is their, their might, their military might, their financial power. God's going to exterminate all of their, their might, their power, their influence. And again, he says he's going to demolish the specifically the military might, the chariots and their riders. And they're going to fall by the sword of another. This is really effortless on the part of God. It's something that's happened in Israel's history, kind of at, you could say, these high watermarks in Israel's history when you know Gideon is going up to, against the army of Midian, and he's just 300 men. And all they do is break their pitchers and blow their trumpets. And all of Midian, which is this vast army, they turn their swords against each other. Can you imagine telling your grandkids about this story? It was amazing. We didn't even have to do anything. We just watched them and we couldn't believe our eyes. This is what God is saying is going to happen. And this happens, it's recorded actually three times in Israel's history. It happens with Saul and the Philistines. It happens with Jehoshaphat and the Ammonites and Moabites. God can do this. 
God can bring these armies, these, this whole world order to, to shameful and fearful ends. And God's holding out this day of calamity against the nations, certainly judgment for their sin. He's kind of holding this out for Israel as a day of hope. Everything's going to be turned upside down so that I can keep my promise. Can God do this? Will God remove all of those hindrances that we see in the way of him accomplishing his promises? Of course he will. He can do this. Can he do something less? This really is a question, though, that God's people have confronted for much of history. And and you know this. I know this. Maybe you'd ask, how's God going to remove the devil? How's God going to defeat death? Well, how did he do it? Surely that's too much. You will crush his head and he will bruise your heel. How's God going to deal with sin? How's it going to be just and forgive people? God is both just and the justifier. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? God, in Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. How does God do all of these things? How does God overcome all these obstacles to keeping his promises? It's in Christ. God addresses these apparent hindrances to keeping his promises. But these things that are there, they're actually due to serious sin, aren't they? Why did all these kingdoms exist? Why why didn't Israel have autonomy and power like they did in Solomon's day? Well, because of their sin. They were being judged for their sin. That's why they were coming back from exile. Even this name, Zerubbabel, you hear in there that word Babel. That's often the word for Babylon. Zerubbabel means son of Babylon. He was maybe born there. It's been some 70 years, maybe 80 years since It could be his parents were taken there. He was probably born in a foreign nation. His name even signifies that we're being judged for sin. It's like Eli's daughter-in-law naming her newborn baby Ichabod because the glory has departed from Israel. This, This name Ichabod means no glory. This is the kind of significance that Zerubbabel's name had. So not only was their current situation to them, it's insurmountable. I can't overthrow Persia to put a king on my own throne. It was was a big deal, but it was also their fault. That's the point. And I'm kind of trying to paint a picture here for how this really applies to us. You understand this, don't you? I've missed too many opportunities. I don't deserve anything good from God again. I've sinned in the same way too many times for God to overcome. I've been abused too much. I'm too broken. God can't use me for his glory anymore. I've blown it too many times. God will never forgive me again. Have you ever talked to yourself in this way? I've buried my spiritual gift for too long. God can't use me to encourage others anymore. The effect of these lines of reasoning when we when we dialogue or monologue to ourselves in these ways, it's really just to doubt God's power and God's promise. God wants you to know that he will remove everything opposed to his purposes. Your sin and all the consequences of your sin, those are no hindrance to him keeping his promise. Do you see that? But again, how? How does he deal with it? How does he overcome sin and its effects to keep his promises? He deals with sin in Jesus Christ. 
Christ dealt with sin and moved it out of the way. God, you could say in the words of Colossians, God took our old self and nailed it to the cross with Jesus in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He deals with it in Christ. So when you sense that your sin has delayed, maybe nullified or canceled God's promises to you, hope in Christ who fulfills all of God's words. But also God wants you to know not just that he's going to remove those things. He really is going to keep every promise he's made. And here there's some references to the Davidic covenant. And just very briefly, we'll we'll have to not turn to all these references. In verse 23, there's a number of references to the Davidic covenant. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel. Son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And here, I I want you to turn to one reference to see the seriousness of what has been said. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 22. And then I'll try to summarize some of the parallels to the Davidic covenant. Jeremiah 22. Is it shocking language to say that Sin could feel like it cancels God's promise. Well, look at the language that God uses here. Jeremiah 22 and verse 34. Um, uh, 24, excuse me. Jeremiah 22, 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. So you see a definite parallel to the word that's coming to uh, his his son. What is God saying he's going to do at the exile? I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. That's strong language. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into into a land they had not known? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Does that sound like some kind of, cancellation of the Davidic covenant. He's not going to have kids. None of his sons are ever going to rule again in this land. God is severely, severely punishing the people of Judah for their sin. So you see how, why they could come away with this feeling of, is God really going to do this? But then maybe turn the page to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah didn't end there in that prophecy. Jeremiah included another promise. In my Bible, I have the heading, the coming Messiah. 
the righteous branch. There's a condemnation of the shepherds of Israel who were leading the people astray. But in verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. So is this a contradiction? No, God is saying, I will actually raise up someone through the line of David that I've just rejected in a very severe way. And he's going to make everything right. There are a number of parallels in this passage back in Haggai 2 between what God says here to Zerubbabel and God's promise to David. God says, David, I I have taken you from the sheepfolds. God says to Zerubbabel, I will take you, Zerubbabel. God calls David my servant. Here he calls Zerubbabel, David's son, my servant. He says, I will make you a signet ring, which uh, is an apparent reference to what God has said about Kaniah, where he's going to take that signet ring off and throw it away. God says, I have chosen you to Zerubbabel. And he says this to David as well. I've chosen you. What is the effect of this? God is saying to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel is my chosen king. He's my man. He's the chosen heir of David. I'm going to keep my promise through this one. And I believe that's backed up by Zerubbabel's name appearing in the genealogies of the Messiah. It really is clear that all of the promises of God are kind of, they culminate, they point to Christ, and he secures every single one of them. So even though there's great sin, this this Davidic covenant serves as kind of an illustration of all of the promises of God that seem to be delayed by our sin. They can't be because Christ has dealt with sin. So I've talked about promises. What promises maybe come to mind? He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Will God do that? If I quench the spirit, is God really going to keep working in me? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I can just barely believe that. I feel so condemned. I condemn myself. 1 Peter 5.10, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Can I really be established? I feel so weak. I'm just struggling with sin again and again. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does God do this? He does it in Christ. One we referenced this morning, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you ever feel feel doubt about these things because of your failure? I know I have. But these are true and they are guaranteed because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners. And in a very visible way, he secures the promises of God so that Jesus Christ will be honored 
by the people of God. So what have you done? What, what sin do you feel could cut you off from God's promises? The people of Israel had sinned greatly and for generations, and they felt the consequences severely. 70 years, just desolation. Their, their, their land was taken away from them. Their temple was taken away from them. God wasn't with them. What promise have you convinced yourself that God cannot fulfill towards you? The message tonight is look to Christ. He's the hope. He's the hope for covenant breakers. He's the savior of sinners. He wrestled sin to the ground and he won. He died to satisfy God's justice against sin. He rose again to justify those he came to save. There is no sin that can cancel God's promise. So run to Christ. God wants you to believe that through his son, he will keep every promise that he makes. Do you believe that? Will you turn from your sin and turn to your Savior? Run to him, cry to him, ask for his forgiveness and his cleansing, and he will make you whole. No one of God's words will fail, and Christ has made sure of that. Of course, God is faithful in himself, but Christ makes that visible so that we can put our hope in him to fulfill God's word to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is true and reliable, and we can trust you. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for making so many of those promises so plain to us that we see how God would do all of these things. And you've triumphed over some of the greatest enemies, really the greatest enemies mankind will ever know. You triumphed over the devil. You triumphed over sin and the grave. Help us to trust you, Lord Jesus. We exalt you and we thank you for your commitment as the word of God really to deliver on God's word. You have and you will help us to exalt you even this week. We pray in Christ's name, amen.